Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, March the 17th. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's also St. Patrick's Day, a day when some people will drink enough green beer that they'll get really sick and puke green beer back up, and other people will party a little less, and other people will party even a little bit more. And some of us will just say, Happy St. Patrick's Day, and move along with our life. Uh, so it is what it is for everybody, but I do want to mention it, because it, uh, it is a calendar-marking day for a lot of people in the world. And a day when I was in school, you used it as an excuse to pinch anybody really freaking hard that didn't wear green, even if you didn't care about the day at all, because you got to get away with pinching people. You remember that? Do they still do that, or is that now considered a microaggression? I, I would actually say it's... It's far more an aggression. It's far more an aggression than a lot of shit these people bitch about. Anyway, we are not going to talk about any of that stuff today. I've got a great lineup for you. And I learned something today in the Ron Paul Liberty Report. I'll wait till it's over and when I play it for you before I talk about it. Um, but I, there's just something I didn't know, and it makes me speculate as to why it was done. Not, I know why it was done. Dr. Paul is right about why it was done. Actually, Dan McAdams is right about why it was done. But, well, how somebody was convinced to do it may not be what it seems on the surface. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk. Ron Paul says he doesn't know what crypto really is. I agree. Uh, but he also is for repealing all legal tender laws and let the market decide. I agree. Uh, Chris Rossini will talk about how fake economies can't last forever. I'm going to talk a little bit in that one when we end that segment about how they can't survive forever, but what they do is they shift. And what I mean when I say the fiat system is dying doesn't mean the people behind it are going away. Next up, Tim the Toolman Cook will talk about choosing a battery ecosystem when selecting a tool line. There's a lot of great tools out there. I'm a DeWalt guy, and I'll tell you why I'm a DeWalt guy, because I've been using DeWalt since the early 90s. And when you've been on a system that long and you're happy with it, you don't change. But, you know, Milwaukee makes good tools. Rigid makes good tools. Part of what you would look at today if you were not already invested in a system is the battery ecosystem. In other words, once I buy one tool in this manufacturer, it makes sense to, to stay on that one line as much as I can and that one battery option as much as I can going forward because everything uses the same stuff, right? And I don't, I'm not perfect with that because there's certain things that DeWalt doesn't make or I'm not willing to pay the DeWalt premium on like my brad nailers that I have from Porter Cable. So we'll talk about that a little bit, too, in a follow-up. Amy Dingman will talk about teaching children to set their own deadlines, hold themselves accountable to them. John Pugliano will talk about diversification of investments outside the stock market. My anchor segment actually talks about that, too, but in a totally different way based on a post I did that went out on Twitter and various Noster platforms today, which I'll read to you, and I'll expand on that. Um... Sean Mills will talk about building a small solar with battery bank system. In this case, the person's asking about for a small barn. But I would say any small building this would work for because it's all the same. Doc Bones will talk about dealing with chemical emergencies like the derailment in Palestine, Ohio. A lot of you guys have been asking me to talk about that. But I, the, the reality is with something that 
massive, I really don't know what you can do now that it's happened if you live there. And your soil's contaminated, other than try to remediate it while it continues to leach from around the area. This is a massive disaster, but there could be other ones. There's also the history of chemical warfare in Doc's response that's probably not what you think it is. It's not just limited to uh, to World War One, which is the most famous instance of it, or fake propaganda films of supposedly uh, chemical warfare in the Middle East in recent times. It is much broader than that. And it, I'll even mention after Doc's segment that it shows up in a particular author's uh, adventure novel. Adventure novel, I don't know if that's the right term for it. The guy's, I won't tell you his name until I do it, but he, the guy's like Tom Clancy. So whatever you would call that kind of writing shows up in there, and it is exaggerated to a large degree. And I don't remember what book it is, but it was an entertaining read. Then I have a segment called Wealth Insurance versus Wealth Assurance. And it has to do with building an unstoppable life, and it invokes one of my bullet points from yesterday in a different angle. That's what we'll have for you today. Before we do that, I've got one sponsor of the day for you today. I'm going to go ahead and play the Kickstarter video, the audio of the Kickstarter video on the air today for you. This is the Kickstarter I've been talking about for a couple weeks now on and off. Paul Wheaton's uh, Low Tech Labs Kickstarter, which is was done by people filming and now being edited his, his uh, Permaculture Jamborees, which just, guys, if you have not grabbed onto this yet, I encourage you to do so. There's lots of levels of participation that you can get involved with and get all the goodies and all the stuff. And Paul Wheaton, let me check real quick before I, I, I say this next part. He has more than 4 x his goal for the project, so you know it's going to happen. The project needed $11,640 to pay for all the editing to get everything put together. The po project has now raised $48,000 in two days. Goal 11, mark so far, 48, days to go 28 to get involved with this. you got 28 days left. you got a February in March to go ahead and get involved. That tells you people are excited about it. When you hear what I'm about to play for you, you'll see why. But this is the thing I want you to understand about Paul. This is not his first rodeo with Kickstarter. That's why he's able to do this. But you know what's about to happen? The stretch, the stretch goals are coming, where he keeps adding more and more and more and more and more value for each level of participation. The last one he did, people that came in at about a hundred bucks ended up with about six hundred, seven hundred dollars in value. This is what Paul does. This is going to be stuff that you want. I'm going to talk today about building your wealth assurance plan, and part of that is skills and knowledge and systems that are you know, regenerative systems, that are productive systems. Every single one of these qualifies. So here we go. This is the short version of the video audio. I took out all the music and stuff in between where you can't see anything, and... Uh, once this is done, we'll come back with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. I'm Paul Wheaton, and this is my 13th Kickstarter. Because I'm keen on low-tech stuff, I've hosted a permaculture technology jamboree for several years now. Usually about a dozen instructors leading a bunch of builds showing off their expertise. One fella felt you needed to see this stuff. So he took a bunch of video with the idea that we might make a movie. 
Paul was like, hey, you want to come out to the PTJ and teach mushroom insulation? Yes, of course I want to do that. Developing communities centered around food, food preservation, food sharing. I want to see if there can be a low smoke, low fuel wood kiln. A lot of the way that the infrastructure of civilization is put together is highly destructive. You can't do that forever. We need more people who feel confident in their ability to build something out of nothing. So it outperforms the conventional standard materials, completely fire resistant. Do you want me to show you the propane thing? This is Pepper the goat. If you get to really be with them, then you see how easy it is. I have hoogles at my property that we have not watered in five years. We have all kinds of things growing how to fell a tree, size the tree properly, how to lay out a saddle notch and cut a saddle notch. He started with a system that worked up to providing like 400 gallons of really beautiful water every day. Sourdough granola, the lime pickled eggs, strawberry rhubarb jam, garlic dill pickles, a kombucha, escabeche, kimchi. The rocket heaters have set aside for me a major impediment to happiness. It had to be possible, and it totally is. We've already, in the first firing, done things that are almost impossible in a wood-fired kiln. Here, everybody's kind of on the same page, and so you can go farther with the conversation. Figuring out how to make the infrastructure of civilization actually regenerative. You get to build things that are beautiful. You get to advance methods, techniques, and schools of thought that make the world a better place, that make the broken things heal a little more. And uh, I think it makes a big difference. Now for the big Kickstarter question. Is there enough interest to pay for the editing? So there is a link in today's show notes where you can get in on this Kickstarter. You could go to kickstarter.com and look it up. But... Uh, Paul does have me as an affiliate partner, and if you use my link, I get a little bit of a kickback on the Kickstarter, so I would appreciate that. With that, let's move into our next segment, the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. You will hear in order Dr. Ron Paul himself, then you will hear from Dan McAdams, and then you will hear from Chris Rossini. And before we go on to our next segment after that, you'll hear a little commentary by me as I come back. You know, we don't know exactly uh, how cryptos are going to work out. And there's a lot of strong uh, feelings and beliefs and convictions, uh, pro and con on uh, on crypto. My general position uh, over the years, even when I was back in Congress, was to make sure that it was legal to use something other than the Federal Reserve. And that's why I had a bill in to repeal all legal tender laws. Uh, and you could use anything you want, but you couldn't use ever use fraud to deceive people and lie to people. You can't have a pseudo gold standard like the government has and tell you, oh, we really have the gold. No, you couldn't commit fraud. But uh, if there's an alternative to it, an electronic age and a computer age, I mean, there's all kinds of things that might be used. And uh, the question is, uh, who, who's winning the argument? The people who say you can't ever work. It's, it's not enough like gold to work. And others would say it is going to work and it's going to be the currency of the world. I don't know the answer and I don't think the market totally knows the answer. And maybe it'll come in between. Maybe there will be crypto gold currency or, or whatever. And uh, as a libertarian, I don't want to impede anything when there's a freedom of choice and another option. And uh, that is why I think the government messes things up so badly. They're just interfering with voluntarism and... And contracts, you live up to your promises. It's a big significant development because 
as we know, this, the Saudis and the Iranians have been uh, at loggerheads for a number of years, and obviously there are, there are historical reasons, the different branches of Shia, of, uh, of Islam, uh, that uh, are at war with each other, essentially. But along comes China uh, and brokers a peace deal between the two of them where they will each recognize each other, open embassies, start relations. And this is something they have been trying to do for quite some time. And in fact, the last <coughs> attempt to do it uh, was thwarted because, remember General Soleimani, he was on the way to Saudi Arabia to deliver a peace message when Donald Trump blew him up. So the U.S. obviously does not want Saudi Arabia and Iran to mend their fences and to get back together. Uh, and, and, and interesting, for a number of reasons, that the Chinese have stepped into the breach and acted as an honest broker and brought these two together. And I think it will be a very significant development for the Middle East, uh, not least which because it really emphasizes what we've, we've been saying all along, which is that aggressive U.S. foreign policy doesn't make the U.S. more relevant to the world. It actually makes the U.S. more irrelevant to the world. So a peace can be brought in a very, very difficult situation with implications you know, across the board from the Yemen war to relations with Israel, etc. A peace deal can be brought with the United States, not only not a part of it, but sitting on the sidelines angrily trying to, to, to prevent the development from happening. So I think it's a very, very significant move. So, you know, Saudi Arabia and China have increased trade significantly over the past year, uh, and there has been talk on and on about uh, being able to trade in one. Uh, so, the, you know, the end of the petrodollar. And as recently, I'm looking at an article here from Yahoo just uh, earlier, uh, well, last, late last month, uh, that says Saudi Arabia says it's now open to the idea of trading in currencies besides the U.S. dollar. So you're seeing, you know, the, maybe the end of the petrodollar with the rise of China. So that's a very significant development. Biden is proposing a six-plus trillion dollar budget. They don't have this money. They're 31 trillion in debt. So what happens is the Fed usually will uh, will create money out of thin air for the government to then uh, spend. And when this happens, this creates a artificial economy. It's a it's a boom. It's you know action. It looks like things are happening. People are making money, but it's fake. A recession is what cures the fake. So unfortunately, people think the recession is the bad part. The bad part is when government spends money it doesn't have that the Fed creates. The recession is the cure to it. And the only way to fix this problem, A, is to let the recession occur so all the bad investments and debts uh, you know, are liquidated. And the only permanent fix is to get rid of the Federal Reserve. While more people than ever, I believe, uh, you know, know about the Fed and pay attention to the Fed, uh, most still do not. But they do pay attention to presidents. And the presidents get credit and blame for what the Fed basically is doing. I believe Trump was a better president than Biden, for sure. But, you know, the economy under Trump, it's very misleading to think that he was some kind of magician uh, because it was money pumping that was pumping up the economy, and it made things look good. Uh, so he was lucky in that sense. Uh, right now, Biden's getting the hangover, you know, and Biden's policies are terrible, but this was inevitable. You know, when you have an artificial boom, there's going to be a bust. And whoever's president at the time is going to have to deal with it. Now, of course, Biden is going to deal with it the wrong way. But the point I'm trying to make is 
it's not uh, it's not smart to fool yourself to think that the Trump years were some kind of economic miracle. They were not. They looked like it. But we're getting now the hangover to all that money pumping, all the spending, all the debt. And, uh, you know, so it's the, the people that watch this show are in a select group. You, you know, it's the Federal Reserve. But most people outside, you know, they think it's Trump. They think it's Biden, this guy, that guy. You know, they're really just where, where they are at the time. And they either take the credit or the blame. So let's let's pick this apart a little bit. I, I completely agree with Ron Paul in that Ron Paul doesn't understand crypto and he doesn't understand the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, which is okay. Uh, most people Ron's age don't and don't have any interest in figuring it out. And it's probably okay for them because they're at a point in their life where they are in some form of retirement. Ron works his ass off, but he, he's probably not worried about money. He's probably good until his dash is used up, so that's okay. But I completely agree with the idea of repealing legal tender laws, though I don't know how necessary it is. And I think that the main reason for it isn't to prevent the exchange of things. It is to create a tax upon things that are exchanged. Uh, so the, the federal government, other than some fees and things that are hidden behind the scenes with like tariffs and what have you, doesn't have a sales tax. And effectively, by saying that things that are money aren't money, you create a sales tax through capital gains tax when those things are exchanged for goods and services, whether they're converted to fiat or not. And then the person is required to tender to the government the tax in the government's money. That's the problem with legal tender laws, because legal tender laws do not mean what you think they mean. If you enter into an agreement with somebody by contract, then if in the United States, if they repay the agreement in dollars, you have to pay, you have to take the dollars, right? But if you by agreement state that something else will be delivered, that agreement is enforceable in that item. The problem is where legal tender comes in. If you have to go to court, the court will decide that the restitution must be paid in dollars. But as a business, you do not have to accept dollars. You, this, this is a very big misconception. There is nothing that stops a business today, online or brick and mortar, than putting up a sign, we accept Bitcoin only, we accept silver and gold only. There's nothing that prevents that in the legal tender law. And it's just something important to know. There are many problems with the legal tender law, and I don't think Ron was inferring what I just said, but I wanted to clear that up for other people. Dan McAdams just kind of broke my brain for half a second. I had no idea that the reason Soleimani went to Iraq was to, to seek diplomatic solutions with Iraq as an intermediary between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I did not know that was what was going on. And, and, and a big piece of me thinks that when Donald, Donald Trump... You know, they, they like to make presidents look strong, so ordered the strike. I don't think Trump ordered the strike. I think he authorized the strike, which is a de facto order. That's a little playing with words. But I think somebody brought this to him and said, we need to do this now, and convinced him to go along with it. And I highly doubt that he knew what you just heard when he authorized the strike. I highly doubt that. It was probably like, we have this one opportunity, and this is my problem. This is one of my many problems with the orange man. When you make a decision to take a human life, okay, this guy, we don't like him. He's a human maggot, whatever. He's, why is he there? Well, it doesn't matter. Oh, it actually kind of does. 
You need someone in an office like President of the United States who can be decisive, but also is methodical in being decisive and has requires of the people advising him all information relevant to the situation before giving that decision. And then, if he makes that decision, in the absence of knowledge when it was requested, the head of the person who did not provide it rolls. Trump was great at hiring his own people and immediately firing them. He never fired any of the swamp creatures while he claimed to drain the swamp. This is another example of one of Donald Trump's supreme failures. And I have no doubt about the source of the information Dan McAdams here. Last, fake economies can't last forever with Chris Rossini. Agreed? But I think there's something you need to understand when you hear people like myself, and I don't, I don't claim to speak for others like in the Bitcoin space or anything. When we talk about the fiat system dying, I think at least the informed people understand. That doesn't mean the J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, etc. go away. What we mean is the current system dies, and then they replace it with something else, and you might want an alternative to the thing that they're going to replace it with. It doesn't mean that the oligarchs all disappear and disintegrate. It doesn't mean that everybody's quote-unquote bankrupt. It's just the bankruptcy doesn't mean what you think it means. So understand what you're living through is an evolution of the current fiat system as it dies and is reborn and reconstituted in some sort of fiat Frankenstein's monster. And that's why you might really want to listen to my anchor segment today. Let's do something different now. Let's talk about something practical. One of my things that I think is part of your wealth assurance plan is having tools. And sometimes when I say tools, I mean other things, but sometimes I also mean what you think of, like power tools and hand tools, because then you can do shit for yourself instead of pay somebody to do it for you. With that, when you're getting a power tool set, how do you choose a, a platform when you're considering the battery ecosystem that you're entering? With that, I'll tell you, you can give you a better answer to that question than me. Tim, Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel segment for you, so let's get right at it. This one says, hello Jack, got a question for Tim. What are the best and the best bang for the buck lawn care ecosystems? Details. It is time to teach my son how to take care of the front and back grass, trees, bushes, etc., I'm looking into buying a battery-powered, self-propelled lawnmower for this, of course. I will likely want some hedge and tree trimming tools and all the rest eventually. I would rather buy all the same brand and have battery sharing. This is what I mean by ecosystem. There are many brands out there and many reviews. Many reviewers appear to be on the take. I find similar reviews almost copy and paste it from a press release. Not so reassuring. It will also help if the maker has good tools with common batteries as I'm switching from my old-fashioned cordless corded tools and saws to battery someday. This is not crucial, however. I hope this is enough info for you, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this. Absolutely. There are a ton of areas we can take this question. Um, but let's start with the top-of-the-line battery-powered lawn care gear is typically made by you know, one of the top of the line lawn care gas companies, and that's Steel, or Still, depending on how you want to pronounce it, S-T-H-I-L. They make great gear. The problem is that it is very, very expensive, or quite expensive, cost prohibitive for most people, to be honest. And it's only geared towards Still 
and only geared toward their lawn care gear. So you'll get, you know, a chainsaw, a pole saw, a hedge trimmer, maybe a, you know, a weed whipper, and that's really about it. So that one's really out. And just the expense alone, I've never even considered it because of that reason. But the next step down, you have Makita, Milwaukee, and DeWalt. And of course, everybody knew I'd say DeWalt, but when it comes down to it, I'm more concerned about you investing in a single battery platform. And those three are the top three who make really good lawn care gear. Like, I mean, really good lawn care gear, surprisingly powerful and durable and a really good runtime for what you get. But they also expand into all the tools you could ever want to care about. And that's what I love. So, Flip coin, whatever you want to do, and you will end up with a Makita, a Milwaukee, or a DeWalt. All the same, all good. I use DeWalt. I have friends who use Milwaukee. It really doesn't matter. Now, if price is also an issue, take one more step down, and from there, you've got Ego, Ryobi, Rigid, and even Bauer, which might be one step below that again, and that is the Harbor Freight brand. Now, what do I love about those? Again, well, the price is a step down, which is big for homeowners or anybody who maybe isn't looking at doing this as a professional. But what it comes down to is they still have a really, really good outlay of tools. And it, all of their stuff goes into power tools as well, which is great. I've had my eye on the Ego stuff for a while. I haven't pulled the trigger. I really like the look of their backpack blowers, but they have a really well-rounded selection of lawn care tools. Ryobi's great. I would say they're one step down from it, but what I love about Ryobi is they're into everything. They might possibly have the largest selection of overall tools you can get, and the price is really, really good. And now Rigid has upped their game in the lawn care gear as well, so it's really good to look at their stuff. And then Bauer, they don't have as much selection. They are the lowest price on the ladder, but I have had decent luck. So if you're just kind of a homeowner looking to get into it, it may be somewhere to look, but I would put them one notch down. You know, Makita, Milwaukee, DeWalt, and then below that, Ego, Ryobi, Rigid, and then maybe Bauer, just below that. So now here's the thing. A couple of questions, three or four that you can ask yourself, but you can also, you know, anybody else out there who's thinking, should I or shouldn't I? Well, number one, do you have an existing platform of batteries? Now, in your case, you don't. So that makes that question and answer very simple. But if you do, then there's no reason not to stick with that platform. And if you happen to see a tool that you really, really love that's outside of your platform, instead of buying a bunch of new batteries, just buy a $25 adapter off of Amazon. They work great. Now, next question most people need to ask is, are you a homeowner or a business owner? If you're a homeowner, then you're probably going to look at the, the mid-tier brands that I talked about. And, of course, all brands have, you know, the good, better, and best. So you may be just happy with the good, or you may look at the better, but you probably don't need to spend that much on the best. Third, how about warranty? Most of the major companies are the same, except Rigid has that wonderful lifetime warranty on their stuff. So that might be the selling point that you want. Milwaukee has a slightly better warranty than DeWalt. Makita's right in there as well. So that's something to think about. And then, of course, what is your budget? How much do you really want to spend on this stuff? Uh, you know, because the sky's the limit. You can buy yourself a battery-powered zero-turn mower right now, but 
Maybe you want to, maybe you don't. So I hope those questions help. I like to ask those questions to people when they're first looking at a new tool brand. It helps figure things out. So if you have any more follow-up you want to, send it along to me. I'll gladly answer any and all questions you have. So guys, that's it for me this week. If you want to know what I'm up to, drop by the Workshop YouTube channel or just add Toolman Tim's Workshop in your podcast feed if you have room for me. we got four episodes a week, uh, live Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So drop by, say hello, come and join the Workshop community. And with that, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Yeah, we're actually beginning to watch a total transition in lawn care, uh, specifically at like the small homestead and uh, residential level to electric equipment because it has so many advantages. You guys know I'm a huge fan of electric chainsaws. In my case, specifically the Oregon chainsaw. And I think Oregon really needs to reach out and start making uh, their chain sharpening technology available at a very uh, affordable licensing rate rather than their kind of kind of piece together solution where you can use it with any uh, chainsaw because the ability to sharpen that chain in the fraction of a second, especially, you know, if you are a, you're dropping timber every day, you are a, uh, out in the, out in the field dropping trees, you're a, uh, tree trimming company or something like that. You're probably using like a steel would be number one. And number two would be something like a Husqvarna or a McCullough, uh, high end, like the contractor level stuff. But if you're in a backyard and you're using a chainsaw a couple times a month, then the ability to sharpen that chain that way without messing around is is pretty amazing. Uh, so I think that that plays into it. Now, the one thing I want to talk about real quick here is on battery ecosystems is a battery warranty. I bleed yellow and black. I have used DeWalt. I think I bought my first DeWalt power tool in 1994, shortly after getting out of the Army and needing power tools uh, for a new career. So uh, when you're on a tool line that long, you become exceedingly loyal. And like I said, loyalty has limitations. So one of my limitations is I wanted some brad nailers, and I looked at the option of getting the DeWalt brad nailers and even adding a second uh, power system from Porter Cable. There was not enough value from DeWalt to pay the differential, in my opinion. I was able to get into the Brad Nailers, two Brad Nailers, plus charger, plus batteries for less than one bare tool Brad Nailer from DeWalt. And I'm not going to use a Brad. I'm not a contractor. I'm not putting in freaking, uh, you know, freaking uh, crown molding every day or something like that. I'm going to use a Brad Nailer infrequently, and it did not make sense. So in that instance, there's other things to think about. One of my best friends used to run a contracting company. At any given time, he'd have 40 or 50 sets of power tools in the field. Now, this was no lawn care stuff, but he ended up going with Rigid because of Rigid's warranty on their battery. And he personally prefers DeWalt tools, but economically, the lack of that, that, that extensive warranty that Rigid offers on the battery. So these are some other things to think about depending on the application. Uh, but I do think we're heading for a day when the average person that has a suburban lot We'll have an electric lawnmower or an electric weed trimmer, etc. Uh, they will all be battery powered. Nothing will have a cord coming out of it, and nothing will use gasoline. And I don't think that has anything really to do with all of this eco-friendly bullshit that they use to market it right now. I think once you use a well-built electric tool like that that has the power that you're looking for, 
The power's on demand. There's no gas motor to maintain. When you're out of fuel, it's as quick as swapping a battery. You're not going to the gas station. You're not spilling gas. I think once you do that, and, and I have a number of tools like that. We have a DeWalt string trimmer, for instance. You just don't want to go back. And so I think that's something we're going to watch continue to evolve and continue to improve because as good as it is, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Next up, have you ever struggled with giving a kid a deadline or a kid having a deadline in school and they don't meet it? And you're like, come on, Johnny, get it done. Well, I think a way to do that is to actually teach them the skill of deadlines instead of bitching about the fact that they don't meet deadlines. Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life to talk about that. Hey everybody, this is Amy Dingman again with the podcast A Farmish Kind of Life. I'm here to answer a homeschooling question. This is actually a question that's come in a couple times, and it is about when you have a homeschooled child, how do you get them to respect deadlines? And this can be an issue in some homeschools depending on how you're choosing to homeschool or what kind of curriculum you're doing. If you have something that's a little bit more relaxed, you might have issues with kids respecting deadlines because deadlines can be kind of arbitrary when you are homeschooling. So I do have a couple suggestions about how to make deadlines more of a thing and to get your kids to respect deadlines. Number one, you have to have some deadlines, right? And I know some of you probably just freaked out a little bit about this, especially if you're a very relaxed homeschooler, but stick with me. A deadline does not have to be, this paper needs to be done by because some of you are not doing homeschool like that. But deadlines happen all the time in real life, right? It can be, I need the bathroom cleaned by the time you go to bed tonight, or the lawn has to be mowed this week, or we need to be in the car by. Those are all deadlines as well. Sometimes when we think about deadlines as a homeschooler, we're thinking it's kind of hard to set deadlines because I'm not making my kids write papers. I'm not making my kids do this giant project um, so it can feel a little bit different. So deadlines exist. You just have to think about them a little differently. Secondly, there has to be a consequence for not meeting a deadline. Now, this is going to backfire if you just arbitrarily set a deadline on a project that your kids can totally see through, right? However, having said that, there are some things in life we just have to do because someone said we have to, right? We're not just making up a deadline to prove a point. If our kids don't finish their project... It's not like we can give them a bad grade. And even if we do, as a homeschooler, what does that mean? What does that even mean? We can't give them detention because that's really just a punishment for us, right? To teach kids to get their work done or to struggle through a task that they don't necessarily care for, there has to be something that happens if they don't do it. I am a big fan of real-life consequences, using real-life consequences when possible. Back when I was in public school... The consequence for repeatedly not turning in your assignments was that you failed the class. The consequence for being tardy three times in a week was detention. The consequence for forgetting to bring your lunch was you didn't eat till you went back home because nobody was calling their parents back then telling them to bring their lunch into them. Consequences in homeschool can be a little bit more tricky, though, because we don't have the same setup. It's really easy to say, if you're not ready to leave by 11, we're going to be late and we're not going to go. That's an obvious real-life consequence, and that makes sense, right? But if you assign a paper to your kid, and they don't get their paper done, or they don't do their reading, or they don't finish the art project, what happens? Mom gets mad and yells. Dad gets mad and yells. You make them spend Saturday finishing the paper instead of going fishing with their friends. What happens if the child turns to you and says, 
But why does it have to be done by Saturday? We're homeschoolers, right? Some of us have kids who question, right? Why does it need to be done by Saturday? We're homeschoolers. Herein lies the problem, okay? And I get some of you are listening to this this little episode here, and you're like, what? <laughs> this would never happen in my house. Other people homeschool different ways. So I'm, I'm trying to reach out to all of you here. The thing you have to do is figure out the currency, all right? Sometimes you have to resort to other measures. Every person has something they value that can be used as currency. If someone told me they were going to take away Mahalo Rose coffee, if I didn't make a weekly meal plan every Sunday night, I would plan out meals for months at a time. You guys, that's a currency for me. What does your kid value? Wi-Fi is very often a major currency, as is being chauffeured to a friend's house or being able to use a cell phone. You've decided to slack off on your responsibilities. Here's what that means. And yes, you are a homeschooler and your responsibilities as a homeschooler is you have that paper done for me by Friday night. I don't think this is a battle of wills. I don't think this is a parent trying to control the show. I think this is, kid, I'm hoping to release you into the world with an ability to stand on two feet, and there are some things you should learn here in the safety of your home before you head out into the great beyond. If you want to take the kinder, gentler approach, you can very easily create currency and dangle it above their heads. Your kids love to go out for ice cream, explain There's going to be a trip to the ice cream shop every Friday afternoon on weeks that school goes really well. And then remember, you're going to need to have a solid definition for what school goes really well actually means, right? And some people are going to call this bribing. There's lots lots of stuff that's said in the homeschooling community. If you are in it, you know. Some people will call this bribing. I call it a goal. I mean, I get up in the morning because there's coffee. I want my coffee, right? If my kids want to complete their book on time because it means we're going to go out for ice cream, more power to them. In my opinion, homeschooling is an agreement between a parent and a child. And having consequences for not completing tasks isn't mean, even though you're going to hear people who are going to say otherwise. Consequences are an inherent part of life. Back when we were homeschooling, I had to tell my children a few times when things got really hairy. Listen, in the state of Minnesota, you are required to be educated from ages 7 to 16. You have the choice to be educated here or at the public school. Here are my expectations if we are going to homeschool. You make the choice. Homeschooling can be a really flexible journey steeped in freedom, but that doesn't mean it's void of responsibility. So that's my two cents about that. Getting kids to respect deadlines is really about a bigger respect and understanding. We chose to homeschool. We got some cool freedom here. We got some awesome things that we can do. But you know what? I've still got deadlines. I still have you. T- I still want you to complete X, Y, Z. And whatever that is for you as the parent, that it's your house. That's your thing. Deadlines are a part of life. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's this paper needs to be done by. Don't Don't freak out about that because you're a homeschooler. Deadlines are a part of life. If you are getting frustrated by your kids' disrespect and deadlines, we need to have consequences. That's a real life thing. There you have it. Thank you for your questions. Be sure to send in more about homeschooling, parenting, family life, and head over to Amazon and check out my Homeschool Highway series. It is a funny and honest and awesome uh, set of books, if, if I do say so myself. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have a great day.
The two add-ons on this. First, the people that say shit like, and I don't care if it's uh, homeschool deadline, I don't care if it's good grades in school, I don't care what it is. When you say, if this, then that to a kid, like if you do this thing that you're supposed to do and you do it well and you do it on time and you get it done and I don't have to ride your ass to make that happen, you do it for yourself with self-discipline, then there's a reward at the end of it. If you call that bribery, then what the F is work, jackasses? I hate to be that blunt, but the people that say shit like that, what is your job then? If your employer didn't pay you, would you go to work? So why do you go to work? To get paid. Why do you get your shit done on time? So I don't get fired. But if you didn't get paid, would you care if you got fired? We always talk about homeschooling being more the real world than public school. And it is. It is. And that's the real world, that people who meet their deadlines get rewards. And those rewards take many forms. And the ultimate reward is that your life ends up better if you meet deadlines. You get more opportunities, you form better relationships, people trust you more. You feel me? Okay, so this is actually the key. We, I'm not saying this is easy, but this is actually the missing keystone into Amy's wonderful segment. The number one way you get a child to comply with something is to get the child to comprehend that it is in their best interest and yes, beyond the reward of the immediate. The immediate gets the attention in training a dog. It is, it is petting the dog and giving them affection and telling them they've done well or giving them a treat or giving them a tug to play with and having like instant reward for compliance. Right? But your child is not a dog. The dog will never reach a point where it really thinks for itself. Even some amazing dogs like my dog, without a command, I can say, Dude, I don't want that chicken in this area right now. Take care of it for me and turn my back. And it is handled until I tell him to stop. That's not a command, right? That's not a command. I literally gave the dog two sentences. He interpreted. He still can't really think for himself. He's not going to set his own goals, right? And if we want a child to behave like a dog, we can get our life to be very convenient, but they're not their life to be very rewarding. You do not have a child. You have to stop thinking I have a child, I have a baby, I have a juvenile. You have a tiny human being. We need to start looking at our children. Yes, it is my job to protect them until they bring, the brain power comes up to where they can protect themselves. Children are born into captivity. But we have to think of them more as an equal when it comes to humanity. And our job is not to train them like we train a dog, but to teach them so that they can build for themselves. So how do we do that? What is the differential? The differential is we have to get through to the child, and this takes time and effort depending on the kid. Some embrace it quickly, some not so much. You should do this because it will be better for you in the future. This is why it's so hard to get a kid that knows damn well they're never going to be an engineer or like some super advanced aerospace person or even go into something like advanced accounting. They know they'll never do that to work hard to get good at advanced calculus in high school. Because they know, no matter what you tell them, they know it's absolute bullshit. They're smart enough to know it, so they choose not to. Yeah, The deadline punishment failure in school, do you know what it did for me? Nothing. I did the calculus, right? I don't mean the subject. I did the calculus. What can I do to still get a decent final average in this class? And if I don't have to do this thing, I'm not doing it. You can yell at me, shout at me. You can tell me I'm wrong. You can give me a zero. I don't care. I already did the math. I don't care. I've told the story before, but like when I was in high school, I had in my sophomore year this science report I was supposed to do, and it was a massive report, and if you didn't do it, 
you were going to get a zero on it. It counted as two test grades. And if you got A's on everything else, all your tests, they would drag your, your grade to a C. And the same teacher had made the mistake of explaining to us, I guess you'd call it a mistake, being honest, that you your final grade was your four quarters put together, averaged out by grade point average, and three A's and a C. I did the math real quick, simple, made an A final average. And by then I knew that only my final average in the class mattered. I just didn't do it. Nothing could make me do it I, because I figured out that there was nothing in me for it. If that teacher had come to me and said, you know, Jack, and they called me John back then, by the way, you know, John, I think if you do this report, you can learn a lot about something you're excited about. It might have cracked. It might have cracked into me. So when it comes to deadlines, I think one of the ways that we can start to get children on board with them is let them set their own deadline. When do you think this should be done by? And if it's anything reasonable, okay. Okay. And then say, okay, well, let's, let's teach you how to do this, and let me explain to you why you do this, and let me explain to you how this will help you in life. And then do your best to do that. And then when the deadline doesn't get met, and the first time you do this, it probably won't, ask them why they failed themselves. Don't think it's too heavy. Now, if the kid's six, maybe that's a little bit much. My grandson's 11. I do not mind asking him the question, why did you fail yourself in this? Don't make it about you. Don't make it because I want it. Make it about them. And don't think because I say that it's easy, but I will tell you it's effective. And sometimes the when something isn't easy, the end result is better. Do you want a, a child who has learned to meet deadlines because they're required to? Or do you want a child who insists upon meeting deadlines for themselves because they realize the benefit to them by doing so? The second one is harder. But the second one is the investment that pays lifelong dividends for you, for them, for their children, which are your eventual grandchildren. Just some additional thoughts. With that, let's move on and hear from John Pugliano about diversifying our investments and our wealth outside of the stock market. Hello, TSP. We have several questions. They're all basically the same theme where people are worried about the stock market. I'm going to answer these questions and then I'll sum everything up with just a real quick stock market review. Okay, first question comes from Aaron. He says he's been considering moving into a whole-life dividend-paying policy to serve as an infinite banking system. He has infinite banking in quotes. I would like to know if John supports this concept. And he goes on to say he has a fairly reasonable IRA 401k savings fund, and he's looking to diversify as a second stream out of stocks and bonds. Aaron, I don't know your particular situation, but let me just say this in general. No, I don't support these things. That doesn't mean that it's not right for you or someone else. But as you mentioned, you know, you have the infinite banking in, in quotation marks. It's not that I think that it's a scam, but I do think that it's a marketing method to get people to buy things like whole life insurance that really isn't doing them as much of an advantage as they think it is. Again, I don't know your particular situation, so what I would encourage you to do just make sure that you understand exactly what's involved with the process and with the transaction fees and especially pay attention to anything that talks about guaranteeing principle, but then make sure you read the fine print and see if there's a clause in there about upside gains being capped. If you've read through all that and you're happy with those restrictions or maybe there aren't any, well then that's fine. I just bring this up because I talk to a lot of people 
They don't read the fine details, and then after contributing to this stuff for years, they think they're going to be making a reasonable return on their money. And the reason that they don't, it's usually because there's a lot of very high fees and there are capped earnings that are used to support principal protection. You sound like you're an informed guy. If you think it's good for you, then go for it. Okay, next question comes from Mike. And his email says, I'm writing to ask the most prudent plan of action for protecting my 401k plan, my current allocation, and then he goes on to tell me uh, a particular growth fund that he's in, and then he's 60% invested in one particular stock. I won't say which one it is. And he's asking, would it be best to put his money in a stable value fund or to stay in the stocks that he's in? Well, Mike, when I first read your email, my first impulse was to go into a rant because you have so much of your retirement savings in one individual stock. And I don't mean a stock index. I mean one particular stock. Again, I'm not going to mention it. It doesn't matter which one it is. I would say the same thing about any individual stock. So as far as your initial question, yes, I think it would be very prudent in general for most people right now to be in some type of a stable value fund. Now let me go back here quickly and talk about this concentration in one stock. The company you mentioned, it's a fantastic company. It's one of the probably one of the top 10 or better companies in America. But to have 66% of your entire investment savings in one company is just ignoring all principles of risk mitigation. Because even though I think that's a wonderful company and it probably has zero chance of going bankrupt, you never know what can happen. And as an illustration, I'll just reference something from a historical perspective. Back in 1982, there were some psychopaths that went around to retail stores and took the Tylenol off the shelf and replaced it with Tylenol that had poison in it. Well, people died. And what do you think happened to Johnson & Johnson's stock, even though they had nothing to do with what was going on? Yeah, it crashed. And eventually it all worked out because Johnson & Johnson wasn't to blame. But I just point that out as kind of a very absurd illustration of what can really happen. You know, there's an old adage that says, don't put all your eggs in one basket. The reason that's an old adage is because there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. So I'd encourage people to never concentrate all their savings into one single stock. Okay, and then this question is from Michael. Similar theme. He says, with the looming black swan event to crash the stock market, is it wise to move my 401k funds into a U.S. Treasury fund. Well, again, Michael, I don't know your particular situation. I'm about 90% in cash. So, yeah, that's probably a good idea. It's something you should consider. And something else I want to mention here on Michael's comment, he mentions about the looming black swan event. Michael, remember something. Black swan events mean that they're unpredictable. And so, when I look at the geopolitical situations going on right now, I do lean in your direction that there probably is a looming black swan event. And so while we all think there may be one coming, it doesn't mean there will be. And again, that's another reason why it's important to remain nimble and flexible, because you have to trade the market that you're in. And as far as the market itself, we're seeing some extreme day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week volatility both to the upside and the downside. The year started out with a lot of enthusiasm, the S&P 500 gained a good 7% or so in the first six weeks of the year. But since then, the optimism has been fading. 
A lot of people are coming to the realization that the Federal Reserve is going to keep interest rates higher for longer, and we still have all the quagmires of the Ukraine war that's gone on for over a year with no end in sight and an ever-increasing Cold War tension going on with China. So whether there is or isn't a black swan event right around the corner, I don't know. But I do know that the stock market in recent weeks has lost its momentum. The S&P 500 has failed and dropped down below its 50-day moving average. And it's trying to settle in on its 200-day moving average. If that 200-day moving average doesn't hold, I think the market's going lower and it could go a lot lower. Well, hey, we'll have to see what happens. Until then, thanks for your questions. This is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. So anything that I say in response to this segment will end up in some way being rehashed by my anchor segment. So I'll just move forward. The one thing that wouldn't be and the one thing that I'll add is if you do have money vested in the market right now, and specifically not a 401k, but an IRA where you have more control, this might be a good time not only to have something in a stable value fund. If well, if you're an IRA, you, you have that option. 401k is really hard because I think we're about to see a major market retraction. It could be in three months. It could be in six months. It could be in a year. I don't know, but... These collapses of the market are the biggest opportunities we have to build wealth in this form of wealth uh, accumulation. And if we don't have capital free, then we don't have capital to act, right? But the other thing that you might really consider is 5% of your portfolio, up to 10, in some form of a hedge fund. And which one, don't ask me, because I believe that hedge funds should be proportionally hedged against the type of investment that you have. And that's a discussion for you and your financial advisor if you have one, or for you and yourself if you don't. Moving on, let's hear from Sean Mills on building a small-scale solar system. Hey, TSP community. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I've got a question about DIY info on installing a small solar cell and battery setup. So details. I'm planning to add some solar cells and batteries to my barn. Need enough to operate shop lights and some power tools. Lights, 400 watts. Tools, one at a time, 1,500 to 2,000 watts. Basic security system, TBD, and other slash reserve of 1,500 watts. Roughly 3,500 to 4,000 watts while I am there working. Looking to do a ground mount, don't want on the roof, and I live in western Kentucky. As a second question, where should I shop for the sales batteries and how much will this cost? Is the government rebate still available? Thanks for any info. Stallion. Well, Stallion, uh, there is some really good stuff on YouTube, but the reality is that putting this stuff together is not hard. Um, you need to understand the difference between parallel and series, and you need to understand where to put your overcurrent devices. If you get that information off of YouTube, the rest of the system is pretty much plug and play. Um, lights and security are good examples of low load over time items, meaning they don't have a very high draw, but that draw is relatively constant. Whereas a power tool is a high draw, low time item. High draw items are not great for flooded lead acid batteries, uh, but it really depends on if these tools are used intermittently or quite a bit. Like I can't really answer your question on cost and what, where to get it, because I don't know if you're going to be running 2,000-watt tools six hours per day or one hour every couple of days. 
on average, it, you know, num- understanding the amount of wattage that you need for your different components is good, but you have to understand the, con- the time component as well. So one of the things that I start with when I'm working with someone is a usage profile, which actually maps out the appliances, the time, and even the time of day that they're being used, because prioritizing high draw items when the sun is out can reduce your battery needs. I love the idea of the ground mount. I tell everyone, do a ground mount if you have the option. Um, now, I will say that I think the best strategy right now for a ground mount is a DIY system. Uh, the manufactured systems seem to be both hard to find and very expensive. Um, I'm working with a guy in East Tennessee right now that just spent like six or $7,000 on a ground mount system. Now, he's got a decent size array. He's putting up about 30 panels. But I would not expect to pay, you know, basically $50 a panel on average um, for a system if you were doing it DIY. His scenario was, hey, I want to get this thing in. I don't want to have to do the time to actually design it, so I'm willing to pay for it, which I get. Um, Generally, a workshop system like you're looking for is going to consist of one lithium iron phosphate battery on a 48-volt system. You're going to want about a 3,000 watt, uh, 120 volt inverter, a charge controller, and about 2,000 watts of solar. Now you could change with, you know, you could play with those components a little bit here or there. Maybe go with a little bit higher um, inverter if you wanted to. Maybe you know plus or minus on the solar, but it's going to run you about four grand for that system. And that system is going to generate between 6,000 8,000 watts of power for you to use. It's going to generate more than that, but I always downrate that generation by the time I get to the actual AC power. Now, the key here is that that battery is only going to hold about 5,000 watt hours. So you're going to have six to 8,000 watt hours per day being generated by the system. The battery can only store 5,000 for you. So you need to be able to, you need to be using um, the balance. And so, you know, excess generation could be utilized by those systems like the lights in the, in the security system, charging uh, things for your, for your uh, drills and things like that. Um, if you were going to use this system intermittently, you could reduce the solar a little bit because the idea there would be, okay, I'm going to use the system, I'm going to use the power tools today, draw that battery down a bit, but it might be two or three days before I use the tools again. Um, but if you were going to run it every day for several hours, you might want to increase that solar. Um, the government rebate is still available at 30%. So that's about all the, the detail I can provide with the information that, that I was given. Um, I do design and provide technical and procurement support on these types of systems. If that's something that you're interested in or if anyone else is interested that's listening, you can email me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com. Otherwise, guys, keep getting questions in, and I will keep getting them answered. Now, this also kind of, in a way, bolts into my discussion uh, at the end of this, this episode, my, my anchor discussion, in that I think that a small-scale solar system of some sort... And every time I say solar system, I'm back in high school, I guess, from talking about it. Like, and I think of the solar system in the planets rather than what I'm really talking about. Solar power system is because if you build one, then you can build another one that's bigger. 
It's always just a matter of scale. If you're putting more than a few batteries together, you have to learn the right way to connect the batteries. You learn what an inverter is, a charge controller is, how to install the panels, how to point the panels at the predominance of the su the sun's radiation, etc. You learn how to run wires. Like It's all the same. It really is. Now, as you get to certain size things and you can like kill yourself and stuff, you need to be careful. Right? Maybe you need an electrician to do certain things for you to make sure it's done right. Like, if you're actually wiring the house, you might want to have them come in and put the final power down and take a look at what you did and make sure you didn't do something stupid. But in the end, like, if you can build a small, let's say, four-battery, five-panel system, then you can build a larger one It's such that you can set up all the power you need for an off-grid cabin. And even if you don't do it initially, having the knowledge is valuable. So that's my addition to that one. Next up, what about chemical emergencies? Like we just experienced one of the greatest chemical emergencies of all time in Palestine, Ohio. Doc Bones will talk about that, along with some interesting history, I think anyway, about chemical warfare. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I guess by now you've heard of the chemical emergency caused by the derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in early February. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, reports that the hazardous materials included 115,000 gallons of vinyl chloride in addition to other chemicals. Shortly thereafter, officials decided to actually set the vinyl chloride on fire, which led to health hazards for the surrounding community. Exposure to toxic vinyl fluoride puts the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, at risk due to contaminated air and possibly the water supply. In the air, vinyl chloride is an irritant. If the water is contaminated, vinyl chloride can enter the air when the water is used for showering, cooking, and clothes washing. Long-term effects of vinyl chloride exposure could be widespread, involving things like the nervous system, the lungs, the liver, the bones, and the entire immune system. Over time, the risk of several types of cancers increase. Damage to the reproductive system of both male and female lab animals has also been reported. Now, of course, the response to a chemical emergency is varied, depends on the substance involved. Each agent has a different effect on the human body. Now, the list of dangerous chemical agents is a long one. It includes things like acids, chemicals that burn and corrode people's skin, eye, or mucous membranes, blister agents, also called vesicants. These are chemicals that severely blister the eyes, respiratory tract, and skin on contact. Blood agents, poisons that affect the body by being absorbed into the blood. Choking agents, chemicals that cause irritation and swelling of the respiratory tract. Incapacitating agents, uh, these are chemicals that cause an altered mental state or unconsciousness. Long-acting anticoagulants, poisons that prevent blood from clotting properly, leading to hemorrhage. Poisonous metals, nerve agents, organic solvents, riot control agents like pepper spray toxic alcohols, and even vomiting agents, the chemicals that cause nausea and vomiting. Now, of course, chemical weapons are largely prohibited nowadays by the Chemical Weapons Convention, that's the CWC, the treaty that outlaws their production and use. Of course, almost all nations have signed the treaty. North Korea is a notable exception. But the risk of chemical attacks by terror organizations still exists. The deliberate use of lethal chemicals dates back to the first poison-tipped arrow. Historical examples of natural and man-made substances used to cause mass casualties abound in history. 
The ancient Greeks, for example, commonly poisoned the water supply of besieged cities. On occasion, would use sulfur fumes on defending forces. During the French conquest of, of Algeria in the 1840s, French troops trapped a thousand Berber tribesmen in a cave and used smoke to kill them. The invention of tear gas in 1912 came just in time for World War I. From 1914 to 1918, both sides used chlorine, sulfur mustard, and phosgene gas. Tens of thousands of artillery shells filled with these substances were employed during the duration, causing 1.3 million chemical casualties and close to 100,000 deaths. A young Adolf Hitler, as a matter of fact, was temporarily blinded by a gas attack in 1918. Although the League of Nations, an early version of the United Nations, ratified a chemical weapons ban in 1925, Benito Mussolini of Italy used mustard gas when he invaded Ethiopia. Although not used on the battlefield in World War II, hydrogen cyanide gas, also known as Zyklon B, killed millions of civilians during the Holocaust. Later in the 20th century, incendiary chemicals like napalm and herbicides like Agent Orange caused deaths and long-term ill effects. Several incidents of chemical weapons use in Syria were reported in 2013 and 2017. So what to do in chemical emergencies? Chemical attacks and accidents such as an overturned tanker truck, train derailment, or a terror event may render an area dangerous. Common sense dictates evacuation as the wisest course of action. This is not only to prevent physical contact, but also to avoid noxious fumes that may be carried by the winds. Given the wide range of chemicals, be sure to seek and rapidly act upon the advice of local emergency departments for the specific event, if they still exist. Evacuation may involve going to an emergency shelter. If so, notify others of your plan of action and take additional supplies and medications that the municipality may not have in sufficient quantities. Know what their policy is regarding pets. The schools your children attend may have their own plan of action for chemical emergencies. Be aware of their disaster protocols. There are so many different chemicals, and each might require a special method to neutralize. To absorb a small spill comprised of inorganic acids and bases, there are commercial neutralizers like FastAct. Some sources suggest that a 1 to 1 to 1 mixture of unscented kitty litter, sodium bicarbonate, that's baking soda, and dry sand is actually good for most chemical spills involving solvents, acids, and bases. Another option is to absorb certain spills with absorbent pads or non-flammable pillows to suppress vapors, or vermiculite, the type that's used in gardening. Some chemical emergencies could make going outdoors risky. Leaving might put you in harm's way, so sheltering in place is, arguably, a way to get some protection until help arrives. Sheltering in a vehicle, however, is a last resort, as vehicles aren't airtight enough to protect you from noxious fumes. If you can't evacuate the area, choose a room with as few windows and doors as possible. Some gases sink to the floor, so a second-story room is preferable. Notice how different this strategy is from most natural disaster plans, where a basement actually might be the safest place in the home. Of course, you want to shut outside doors and windows as soon as you're aware of the emergency. Locking and taping them will make a better seal against the chemical. Turn off air conditioners, fans, and heaters, close the fireplace damper, vents, and any place that air can enter from outside. Go into the designated safe room, shut the door. Turn on the radio and keep a cell phone available. If it's necessary to drink water, drink safely stored water, not water from the tap. Consider shutting off the valve for your house. That may help avoid contamination of the existing water in the pipes. If you run out of water, you can drink from the toilet tank, but not from the bowl, or release some from the hot water heater. Some types of chemical exposure involve direct contact. 
As many substances, especially in liquid or solid form, can penetrate clothing and be absorbed through the skin, it's necessary to remove and safely dispose of contaminated clothing. A thorough body wash with soap and water is needed to protect both the victim and medical personnel. The faster this is accomplished, the more effective the decontamination. Once the chemical has contaminated the water supply, showering may spray it onto you. When taking off chemically drenched clothing, avoid pulling it over your head. Cut it off instead. When removing clothing from others, make every effort to avoid touching contaminated areas without hand protection. Things like rubber kitchen gloves would be a good idea, maybe tongs, other methods that avoid contact with the skin. Place all dirty items in a biohazard bag and seal it. Eye damage from chemical exposure, that can be severe. You want to remove any contact lenses and rinse eyes with clean water for 10 to 15 minutes. You want to hold the eyelids away from the eyeball while moving the eye in all directions. If you have eyeglasses, wash them with soap and water. With any luck, a chemical emergency will only last a short time. Despite this, your shelter should always have the usual basics. A good first aid kit, flashlights, battery-powered radio, extra batteries, a means of communication, food and bottled water. You want to store at least one gallon of water per person in plastic bottles, as well as non-perishable foods with a long storage life. That's one gallon of water per day per person. Towels and plastic sheeting. You may have to cut sheeting to fit your windows, doors, and vents. Duct tape can be used to form a better seal. And of course, this is the absolute minimum of necessary for a short-term event. Longer-term disasters require much more, which we've talked about many times. In modern times, you can call 911 or your local poison control center for more information. Some specialized materials not normally included in medical kits are useful for chemical spills. They include rubber or other chemically resistant gloves, aprons and boots, gowns, brooms and dustpans, safety goggles, gas masks. You should know that N95 and other respiratory masks Well, they may provide some protection against certain airborne infections, but they're insufficient to protect against most noxious chemicals and gases. Plastic spatulas and shovels, plastic hazardous material bags, five-gallon buckets with lids, drum liners, baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, and maybe vermiculite product used in gardening. Hopefully, you'll never be involved in a major chemical emergency, but it's the responsibility of the survival medic to know about any crisis they may face in times of trouble. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please support our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So there's actually a Brad Thor novel that expands on some of this chemical warfare and ancient time stuff, and it's drawn from truth, and it and it ends up being total bullshit in the movie or the the book. Uh, if you've ever read Brad Thor, he writes some really interesting books. They're easy to read. One of the few, I guess, genre of fiction books that I've read in the last 15 years has been stuff from Brad Thor, and primarily because one time he came into my house, and I was like, who is this guy? And I got kind of hooked in. Most of my reading is actually, you would say, more intellectual reading. But he talks about Hannibal in this book. Uh, there's snake venom involved in this. But, like, there's just, the, the actual thing that's created is impossible, and the, the lore around the snake, you know me being a herpetologist, like, this is bullshit. Uh, but it was really interesting reading, and a lot of true things were in it about... Uh, chemical warfare. I just don't remember which book it was because the guy's got like 20 based around the same primary uh, protagonist, uh, Scott Harvath. So I I don't remember which book it is. If you guys do, if somebody does, come put it in the comments and I'll let people know next week if they want to check it out. Now let's go into you know my discussion today, which is wealth insurance versus wealth assurance. I didn't really have this planned. 
And there was just some discussion that's gone on recently uh, with people I follow on Twitter and Noster now. And I sat down this morning drinking my first cup of coffee, and I'm just going to read the post that I made about wealth assurance versus wealth insurance. Uh, and and it's, it's been very well received since I made it. So what is wealth assurance versus wealth insurance? Insurance, something that pays when a failure happens. Assurance, something that prevents failure in the first place. Hence, I place Bitcoin, gold and silver, a productive homestead, productive real estate, income systems, production systems, skills, tools, and ongoing useful self-led education in the wealth assurance plan basket. I consider Bitcoin the keystone in my plan, and I think it should be in yours as well. But there are nine parts to this plan. If you have less than six pieces in your plan in a meaningful way, then you have work to do. You're not wrong. You're not bad. You're just not done yet. Bitcoin alone won't do it, nor will silver or boomer shifts gold, nor will having a productive homestead. Without other assets insuring each other, every person who feels wealthy is weak and subject to attack and subject to market forces taking everything away. What good is having a stack of Bitcoin and nothing more when the economy shits the bed in the middle of a bear market? Then you have to spend your stack to nothing just to survive while people like me buy it at a discount. What good is your house when you can't pay the mortgage? What good is your box of metal when you have to pawn it to eat? Listen to me, plebs, and wood should be plebs. The secret to wealth? Buy appreciating assets and never sell them. The only way you ever let them go is swapping them for more valuable appreciating assets, and this is mostly done with real estate. Build enough wealth that you can live on 5% or less of it, and I didn't put that in there, but per year is what I mean by that, while that wealth accumulates through appreciation at an average greater than 5%. And don't spend it, leverage it. To do this, you need an assortment of assets that compensate for bad times on the others. Building this to where you can live on 2-3% is truly the way. You pay no taxes on your primary cash flow this way. It takes time and dedication. I'm 50 and very, quote, successful, end quote. But I'm only about 70% to where I can shift into this mode right now. And that means I am 100% not doing it. I am still 100% in building mode. I learned a lot from mentors over the years. Made a lot of money. I was VP of sales for a billion-dollar company, and I was the very best in that company by 29 with no degree. I built multiple businesses after that, and I've made a multi-six-figure income doing, of all things, podcasting since 2010. However, if anybody had told me what I just told you now, when I was so young that Bitcoin was still 20 years away, I would be typing this message to you from a small island nation called... Jackistan. I have been in Bitcoin since 2013, and I've done very well by doing so. But I spent it in the early years, I shitcoined, etc. Had I simply taken this advice just 10 years ago, I'd be in Jackistan as well. Most of you are a lot younger. You can keep trying to outsmart the system of wealth that is older than Bitcoin, older than you, older than your granddad if he's still around. Hell, this system is so old it predates most modern religions. You are not smarter than thousands of years of proven history. Bitcoin is amazing, a blessing to any man or woman who chooses to understand it, but it itself is not wealth. Just 
the latest form of money. Wood is not fire. It is fuel for a fire. Coal is not fire. It is fuel for a fire. Get it? Changing the fuel doesn't change the system of making, stoking, and tending a fire. Bitcoin is the best fuel for the fire of wealth man has ever discovered. That you still must light it, stoke it, feed it, maintain it, control it, and tend your fire. Read or listen to the richest man in Babylon. And when you hear or read the word gold, change it to Bitcoin about 75% of the time. Take it to heart or realize even if you do very well, all you have will always be at risk. Again, you are not going to outsmart history. Folks, I don't have to add much to that. That just kind of flowed out of me this morning. But I do want to talk a little bit about why I think on an annual basis you should either read or listen to The Richest Man in Babylon. The good news is it's available completely free on YouTube to listen to. I don't know if I can find it, but I actually broke it down into like three segments uh, in MP3 and put it on my server by stripping the audio out of that. But I don't know if I can find it out because it was so long ago I did that. I did it for a single individual so that maybe they would listen to it and they did not. Do not be like that person. There's a concept in that book that comes back over and over again. And, 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 and the gentleman who wrote the book always uses the word gold for money. And because it's written as a, a tale about the city of Babylon, and at the time, that's what you would have used. You would have used gold. And that's why he stays in that mode. It's also written in the 20s. Actually, I think it was in the late 20s into the early 30s, like in the height of the Great Depression that this book came out, if I remember correctly. And gold was still money, even once it was rebased against the dollar by FDR. So gold makes sense in this. So when you read gold, if you are not a Bitcoin person, if you are still a holdout, that's okay. If you follow this plan without Bitcoin, it will still work. I just don't believe it will work, but it will still work. It's okay. It's okay. But then when you read the word gold, you better think money, and you better realize money takes many forms. And there is the best money and the worst money. And the money that we use right now as currency is probably the worst form of money that has ever been created by mankind that's actually been successful at the same time. But even that money. There's a word that's used in this book that's very triggering for some in our modern day. It's why we've changed words like master bedroom to primary bedroom on real estate shows because everybody's triggered by microaggressions. And that word is slave. Now, the word slave actually should be well accepted in society today because most people in society are slaves. We won't go into that today. I've covered it before. You know what I mean if you've heard me cover it before. Maybe we need to do a show on the fact that most people are slaves next week. We haven't done that for a while. Maybe it would be a good idea. But the concept of the master and the slave is used in many different forms of speech or many different colloquialisms in electricity or programming or automation. We talk about the master and the slave, as in the master commands and the slave does as it's told. This is a perfectly good use of language. It's not advocation for making human beings slaves, even though most people are willing slaves who now have to feed and clothe themselves. Yeah. But the word slave is used in this book many times, and it does not... There's some slaves in the story, like actual slaves, but generally the word slave in this story is used to describe how you should treat your money. When you acquire money, it should become your slave. It should do as it's told, and it should reap to you a reward. 
And you should never free it from its role as your slave. That is actually what this write-up that I did this morning is talking about. Acquiring things that have value, whether they be money or systems or what have you, and then being a good master to them as your slave. And you can enslave money, and you have not committed a moral sin. You can enslave a system of production in that you design the system and it produces as you desire and you have not gone to another country and captured a human being. We cannot be triggered by this word. We need to truly understand it. You must be the commander of your assets, if that makes you feel better. He who commands his assets will continue to grow them and he whose assets command him will become somebody else's slave through the concept of debt. And debt against depreciating assets is the number one way that humans are enslaved in society today. Or, in many instances, in mass, people are enslaved even through debt against depreciating assets, i.e. real estate, when it's not done properly. Because your, your act of taking the loan on the property actually allows them to print money for themselves on your promise to repay And mortgage actually means the grip of death. Mort, mortality, gauge to grip. You can't make this stuff up. It fits so well. So it is your choice. You can continue, if you are doing so, to plot along with one or two arrows in your quiver of wealth assurance, which means you don't have wealth insurance or assurance, or you can diversify in a meaningful way. And you can think about the concept of growing your portfolio of, of, of assets that always become worth more. A garden tended right even always becomes worth more because its soil becomes more valuable across time as we continue to build the carbon in it and the life in it. And so the gardens that you put in today, if you tend them properly in 10 years, will be worth far more than they are this year. And far more than the materials required to build them across time. Just as a business, if run properly, will continue to provide more and more value back to you as its owner, as its commander, as its master, as it acts as your slave. And that doesn't mean if your business is your slave, your employees are slaves. The business itself is a slave, and if your employees are good employees, in some way they have fractional ownership in the slavery of the business. This is either over your head... It's starting to get in, or you get it. If you get it, you may actually be far ahead of me with it. If it's starting to seep in, embrace it. If it's over your head, understand. Just like I talked about earlier with setting deadlines for children, and saying to them, rather than you should do this because I say so, you should do this because it will enrich your life in ways you cannot even imagine. It is time to take this seriously because you are living through the death of an existing system whether you want to or not. I know you did not ask to be born the year of your birth. I, didn't know, I know you did not ask to be in this time. I know you did not ask to be part of the fourth turning. You might be old, and if you're old enough, you might not really care if you've done well enough for yourself. You might be like me, middle-aged, and it's actually the hardest place to be because you've enriched yourself enough off the existing system that it's in your instinct to defend what got you to where you are. If you're young, you may blame the generations before you and loathe the generations that come after you. It doesn't matter, bitch. You're all on your own anyway. Everything is your responsibility. You can cry or you can build. You can sob or you can cheer. 
It is your choice. No one can do it for you. No one should do it for you. And if they did do it for you, whatever you gained, you would squander. Read or listen to The Richest Man in Babylon at least at least once a year. And continuously reboot the mindset that that which you acquire that appreciates is to be retained. And that way you'll actually do it. And many of you right now who are out there are 25, 30, 20 years old that think, man, he's got it made. By the time you're my age, if you're not doing far better than I am right now, it is because you squandered the greatest opportunity that will come in your lifetime. There is a pain in living through the death of a world order. But there is an opportunity in it that only comes around every 100 or 200 years. Your children's children will not get this opportunity. They will be living in the modern version of the 1950s with a lot of things as good and many things better, or they will be living in full totalitarianism. And the difference between whether or not they will be living in something amazing or totalitarianism isn't your ability to shift the movement of the world order. It is in how will you capitalize on it. Freedom in the future will be as it's always been, purchased at a price. You think that we're free today, but freedom has always been available to those who could pay for it. It's not fair. I don't care. It is. It's not here. I'm not here to advocate for fairness. Because if I advocate for fairness and I shit in my other hand, I know which one will fill up first. Freedom, freedom is expensive because it's precious. And the more precious a thing, the more expensive it will be. It is up to you to decide if you will turn your assets into your slave or you will become a slave to your assets. It's your choice. You get one game here and no extra lives. Choose wisely with that, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. I will be back next week with another episode with That's Been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.